Tonight I would like to speak about one of the most fundamental principles or aspects of Dharma practice and Dharma understanding. And it's a theme which is found in all of the major spiritual traditions. It has to do with the creation of dualistic perception. How it is that the mind goes from a place of non-dual awareness to one of fragmentation and distinctions and separations. How we create through those separations and distinctions a limitation for ourselves. We create a prison of division, a prison of duality. In almost all of the major spiritual traditions, there's the emphasis on understanding that creation of duality and transcending it, coming to a place of unity, of unification, of integration. The writer by the name of Ken Wilbur, who's written a very interesting book called Spectrum of Consciousness, and in it he describes in a very clear and lucid way, the progression of dualities which we have created. Starts off by talking of the most fundamental, the primary dualistic perception we have. And that is the dualism of self and other. subject and object, inside and outside, and how it is that we go from a place of non-duality, of oneness, of the suchness of things, how it is that we create this subject-object separation. It's the first level of dualistic thinking. It's the first limitation. It's separating ourselves our organism from the environment, separating ourselves out from the totality of experience. The second level of dualistic thinking, which comes from that one. And it's the level of duality, the organism, the body, the separation in the organism of the mind-body split. How we separate ourselves out in that sense of, I have a body. Right. The ego creation within the organism of a part separate from the totality. So we have the ego mind within the organism, separate from the, separate from the totality, separate from the body. There's another very fundamental split. We don't stop there in our dualistic mode of perception. We go on to fragment the ego mind itself. We fragment that into the sense of what has been called the persona and the shadow. Persona meaning all of those self-images which we've created, of who we think we are, of how we are in the world, 
all the patterns and tapes, conditioning in our mind. That's the persona, how we're presenting ourselves, our mind, our ego, how we present ourselves to ourselves and to other people. And we split that part of the mind from what's been called the shadow. All of those elements of mind which we discard, which we don't want, we don't want to take a look at, the dark, the unpleasant. And we repress that into the unconscious. We don't allow for it. And so, not only do we separate ourselves out from the body into this kind of ego self, we even fragment that ego self into the self-image which we can accept and allow and identify with, and the shadow part of the mind, which we don't like to say. The negativities in the mind. What's interesting about the shadow has two aspects reflected in that name. One is that it's the darker side of things, the negative side of things. And the other is that like a shadow, even though we repress it into the unconscious, it follows us about. It's as if we can't really throw out or can't really discard that area of the mind, that element of the mind. But because we don't open to it or allow for it, it becomes unconscious, and in an unconscious way, motivates us and limits us. You can see how each major dualism is a restriction, a narrowing, how we go from a non-dual total awareness, not identifying with any one part at all. We go from that to identifying with the total organism, the mind and body, separate from the environment. It's the first restriction, pulling back. And then how we split that, we fragment that, and we create the ego mind within the body, the sense of, I have a body, there's someone inside separate from it. And how we fragment that even further, even this ego mind, we create and identify with the persona, the self-image, repressing the shadow part, the unwanted part. And each one of these dualities further restricts us, further imprisons us, takes us further and further away from that place of non-dual awareness, from that place of oneness. The path of Dharma, in a very profound sense, is to start reintegrating these dualities, to start transcending the dualities so we can come to a place of wholeness, This split, or this distinction on all these levels, split into two, was described by someone very aptly as the rent in the seamless fabric of the universe. The tear in that seamless fabric. Actually, the universe is a whole, is a totality, is a oneness. But through the power of ignorance in the mind, through the power of that factor, we make a tear in this seamless fabric on all these different levels. And so we become fragmented. We have to start the process of integration, and it's really one of healing, 
of knitting these dualities together, these polarities together, we start this process of healing on that very basic level of the persona and the shadow. By taking a look at our minds and to begin to explore how it is that we've split up our minds, how we accept some things and don't accept another, It means taking a look and exploring at the whole creation of self-image. What is it that we identify with? What kinds of emotional patterns or thoughts or conditioning? What part of our mind are we creating that self? Are we identifying with? And it's also a process of being very soft and very open and very allowing for the shadow to allow all the kinds of repressed and unconscious thoughts and emotions and feelings and images, to allow that whole shadow part of the mind to come into consciousness, to accept it, not to reinforce that sense of discarding or separation or trying to keep apart, but really welcoming every single aspect of our mind. And you see how, in the beginning of practice, a lot of what we have to do is work with that quality of opening up to things without fear and without judgment and without evaluation. So we can begin to reintegrate all of the different aspects. To see the self-images, to see the persona that we're projecting, and to open up to the shadow side so that we're not split on that very fundamental level. We come to an acceptance of the totality of our mind. As long as we identify with any one part of our mind, that identification creates a separation and a conflict. If we take one part of our experience of our mind and identify with that as being self, as being I, then in the very nature of that identification, a conflict is created between that segment, that part of the mind, and everything else. We're in this basic state of tension. To begin to work at integration, at opening, at accepting the images, the persona, accepting the shadow. So we can see everything that's arising in the mind, see it in an accepting, friendly way. Make friends with our minds. When we begin to have a sense of the unification of the ego mind, that is, of the persona and the shadow, we also can begin to integrate, to work with the unification of this mind-body duality. Instead of working from the place of having a body, you know, what does that, what does that sentence imply? It implies that there's some self, some separate entity within who has this body, who possesses it. That very way of expressing it postulates the duality. 
of mind and body, as if they're two different things, as if our organism is split in that way. Do it coming into an interview, you know, when you describe your sitting, I have this pain in my knee. The notion of someone having something in their experience, in their experience of the body, sustains the illusion of separateness, of fragmentation. To begin to work with bringing together or integrating mind and body into a more total kind of organism. When we work from that place of separation, it's as if there's an ego center and we relate to things as being outside that ego center. Right? We relate to our bodies as being outside, we relate to the pain, to the feelings as being outside. Naturally, we relate to everything on the outside of the body as being outside. Everything is coming from that ego place relating to different objects. When we're coming from that ego center, within the body, within the organism, what kind of mind states arise from that? There's the mind states of fear, I have to protect this ego center, of attachment, of aversion, of judgment, of comparison. And all of those mind states which constitute separation, which constitute the dualistic perception of ourselves in the world, they all come based on that sense of someone inside, right, some ego center, some self-center, possessing the body. It comes from that mind-body split. So to begin to take a look at that, to begin to take a look at the split and how the attachment and aversion and judgment and comparison all comes from that. Also from this sense of an I, of a self, inside, you know, who has this body, we create a whole world of mental projection. Because we're not totally full in the experience of ourselves as an organism, and we have this split of mind and body, we get caught in the mind's projections, in the mind's creations. An example of this, it always strikes me very clearly in the walking meditation. Because for some reason, in the walking, there's a very clear sense of the groundedness of the experience and the mind projections and creations that take place. So you're doing the walking, and just lifting and moving and placing and touching the foot on the ground. And in the middle of this very grounded, full experience of the moment, the mind is creating thoughts of Boston and New York and San Francisco and past and future. And it's all because of that sense of there being an eye inside the body somehow apart from it. And so the body can be walking, you know, taking all these steps, and the mind, the self, that sense of of ego-self is often this mind fantasy 
of a created, a created mental world, if we were full in our experience of an integrated mind-body, of a total organism, there wouldn't be that separation of the self within the body, and so we wouldn't get caught in these mind projections, in these mind fantasies. Now when we're walking, and there are thoughts of New York or Boston, it's not New York or Boston that's there. They're only these thought bubbles, and yet you know how much reality we can invest in them. You can walk ten steps as if you were in New York, you know, and caught in seeing your friends and speaking to people and doing things, and then, oh yes, touching. That kind of immersion, that kind of ignorance with respect to taking a mind fantasy, a mind creation as being real, comes from this dualistic split of the self or the I somehow being inside of this as separate from the body. Okay, so the next level of healing after the integration of the persona in the shadow to the integration of the mind aspects, the next level of healing has to do with the integration of the mind-body coming to a sense of a total organism, not being separate, not being fragmented. There's a very powerful mythological symbol of this unification. And it's the symbol of the centaur, you know, half person, half horse. The body of a horse and the head an upper part of a person. That's very different than a person riding the horse. The person riding the horse is the symbol of the mind-body split. As if there's someone in charge of this body who has it and runs it and directs it. The centaur is the symbol of the unification, of a being of an organism at one, mind and body in an integrated fashion. When we come to this level of awareness, the fullness of the organism as a whole, as a totality, not creating the split of self or I or ego inside, who's running the show or directing the show or having the body, but when we begin to unify that duality, come to centaur consciousness, right, the totality, it's possible then to free ourselves from the attachment to those mind worlds created by judgments and attachments and fear and past and future because we're not splitting ourselves off and allowing the mind to exist independently of our total experience in the moment. This is in Ken Wilber's book. He quotes Emerson from one of Emerson's essays. These roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time for them. There is simply the rose. 
It is perfect in every moment of its existence. But people postpone or remember. They do not live in the present, but with reverted eye lament the past, or heedless of the riches that surround them, stand on tiptoe to foresee the future. They cannot be happy and strong until they too live with nature in the present, above time. That's the sense of unity on this level, not fragmenting body and mind, self or I or ego within the body. You come to that sense of totality of experience, so that when you're doing the walking meditation, there's a fullness of experience that is total and complete and holistic in that very moment. Just as that rose doesn't compare with past or with future or desires, it's complete in each moment of its existence. We can come to that same level of totality in each moment when we don't fragment ourselves. In the walking, there's moving, there's touching, there's feeling. There's fullness in that kind of perception. Begin to see that what we are is the experience in each passing moment. It's not that there's someone who has the experience. When we think in that way, again that creates the duality of self-separate from the organism, somebody riding the horse. When we begin to experience things, we begin to experience ourselves as being each passing moment of experience, then there's just an endless opening, an endless opening into the present, into seeing, into hearing, into smelling, into feeling, into thinking without any separation, any duality, any sense of self, any sense of ego. Begin to work from this place, the place of the center, of the fullness, of being full as an organism, we then can begin to appreciate and to heal and to integrate the fundamental, primary, dualistic mode of thinking. And that is the one which separates ourselves out, which separates the organism as a whole out from the environment. That fundamental creation of subject and object, of inside and outside, of self and other. Because even when we're full, as an organism, as a mind and body, not creating dichotomies, We can still identify with that as being apart from the world around us, seeing ourselves as being separate. It's possible to heal that dichotomy, to heal that duality. When you're seeing something, 
when you're hearing something, where is the inside and outside? You know, you hear the bell. Is the hearing inside of you? Is it outside of you? It's possible to eliminate that dualistic way of perceiving things. Just the hearing, just the seeing, just the smelling. No inside-outside, no separation, no dichotomy, no duality. Now, one of the most powerful statements of the Buddha, which talked about in various the talks, when he told this one man who had come seeking enlightenment or wisdom, one famous stanza, in the scene, there is just what is seen. In the hearing, there is just what is heard, just what is smelled, just what is tasted, just what is touched, just what is thought. If we can be with experience in that way, it's easy to understand the oneness, the non-dual awareness, without separating ourselves out from the environment. In the Abhidharma, there's a, there's a fairly clear explanation of just this process of interdependent origination how that there is no separate self that somehow is existing independently of the environment. And it's talked about in terms of how a particular moment of consciousness arises. For example, we have a moment of seeing. What are the components of seeing consciousness? What has to happen? What are the causes for seeing to occur? There has, to be, there has to be the organ of the eye. There has to be a color coming before the eye. There has to be attention. There has to be light. If any of those components are missing, seeing consciousness won't arise. Seeing consciousness is not inside. It's not that someone is seeing. It's not outside. It's the result of interdependent conditions. When the conditions, when the energies, when the factors all come together, there's this moment of seeing consciousness. No separation out of someone who's having it. Rather a state of what in Zen is called suchness. Just the suchness of things. Instead of operating then from the ego center, that sense of self, of I, inside somehow, relating to everything else as being outside, as being objects, we begin to relate from the zero center. Not the center of ego, but the center of emptiness, emptiness of self. This is from Suzuki Roshi. Usually we think of our mind as receiving impressions and experiences from outside, but that is not a true understanding of mind. The true understanding is that the mind includes everything. 
When you think something comes from outside, it means only that something appears in your mind. If your mind is related to something outside of itself, that mind is a small mind, a limited mind. If your mind is not related to anything, then there is no dualistic understanding. You understand activity as just waves of your mind. Big mind experiences everything within itself. Do you understand the difference between the two minds? The mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something. Actually, they are the same thing. But the understanding is different. And your attitude towards your life will be different according to which understanding you have. That everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. That sense of big mind including everything within it in that sense, there's no inside, there's no outside, there's no separation, there's no distinction. The mind includes everything. It includes this, and this, and this, and sounds, and sights, thoughts, and feelings, and sensations, all arising within the space of big mind. But when we relate to objects from that ego center, as if there's a mind in here, self and I, relating to sights and to sounds and to smells and to thoughts, then we're operating from that place of small mind, of limited mind. To begin to understand that difference is to open the possibility of coming to a non-dual awareness, coming to that space of big mind. If you could follow any of this, you might be wondering what to do with it. <laughs> you know, perhaps it sounds fine, perhaps, what to do in terms of the practice. Actually, this understanding of the various ways we create duality is very fundamental to the practice. It's what it's all about, because every aspect of duality is a limitation, is bondage. The possibility of coming to a place of oneness, of suchness, of openness, of non-separation, non-distinction, not separating ourselves out from the totality by identifying with any one part. It's in that non-duality that there's the possibility of freedom. Because as long as we're limited, as long as we're separated, whether it's the separation of part of our mind from another part, whether it's the separation of the mind from the body, whether it's the separation of the organism from the total environment, any one of those separations becomes a prison. The path of freedom, the path of Dharma, is to begin to understand how those dualities create the limitation and how to integrate, how to heal them. How to do it? That's the next question.
And the how to do it has to do with one aspect of mindfulness that we don't talk about so much, but in fact is an intrinsic part of what mindfulness means, what awareness means, and is the underlying principle of unification. And that's the aspect of awareness, which is love. What does love mean in this sense? It's not sentimental love, and it's not particularly emotional love. It's love in the sense of total and complete acceptance, of not rejecting. Maharaji, Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, one of the things he said very often to people around him, don't throw anyone out of your heart. And nobody should be excluded from your heart. That nobody can be expanded to include everything. Not to throw anything out of your heart, which means not to create any separation between yourself and something else. It's the quality of love, which means openness of heart to be accepting of everything, to be accepting of all the parts of the mind that we don't want to see, to be accepting of every experience of the mind and body, to be accepting of everything which we call outside of ourselves as also being part of ourselves. It's that quality of love, quality of acceptance, quality of openness, which allows for the integration, it allows for the healing. And one of the aspects of this loving quality is a growing appreciation of every single moment of experience of big mind. Whatever occurs within this oneness of mind, within this openness of heart, there's an appreciation of it. And some things are difficult, and some things are easy. And there's that sense of wonder and openness because we're not separating ourselves from those experiences, but rather seeing ourselves as the unfolding of big mind. We are the unfolding of all these experiences, whether it's the experience of an interaction with a person, or a tree, or the zafu, or a thought, or an emotion. We are the unfolding of all those experiences. They're not separate from us, they're not outside of us. It's what we are. Love in this sense, this love of being allowing and open and receptive, it's the most fundamental intimacy that's possible because it's the intimacy of two becoming one. And whether it's with a person, or a thought, or some physical object, it's that same process at work. It's the most intimate way of being with our experience, because we're creating no barriers. We're not separating ourselves from it. This process of opening, 
of allowing this acceptance, this feeling of love to be that which encompasses all of our experience. That's the path of mindfulness. Mindfulness is no different than that. And an aspect of this love is appreciation of every experience. There's also a quality of trust, of trusting the unfolding so that we can allow ourselves to be with each moment of experience without fear. And there's a really nice haiku poem by a famous Zen master which says, simply trust. Don't also the petals flutter down, just like that. If you have an image of the petals of a flower or the leaves of a tree fluttering down, could we let go with that sense of trust? There's no panic in that letting go. There's no fear. There's just the fluttering down. It's a big moment when a petal leaves the flower or a leaf leaves the tree. And yet there's total trust in that moment. If we can work with that sense of trust in each moment, each moment is like the leaf falling down. It's each moment of changing experience to work with that element of love and of trust in practice. One of the most interesting understandings in Dharma practice is that we have to be able to work on all of these levels. We have to work on the level of integrating the shadow and the persona, really exploring the mind, exploring (coughs) that psychological level of attachment to self-images and the kinds of projections we have of ourselves, of exploring the dark side of our psyche, all the things which we've repressed. It means working on the level of integrating mind and body. It means working on the level of not separating ourselves from environment. And often in different spiritual teachings, the teachings will be addressing themselves to one or another of those levels. And sometimes it confuses people. Sansanim, the Korean Zen master who will be coming to visit in a few days, he has a wonderful statement. It's a fine Zen paradox about working on levels. He says, there's no right or wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. How to understand that, how to work with that? There's no right or wrong. In the, in the Dharma element of emptiness, of non-discrimination, there's no right or wrong or good or bad. And yet right is right and wrong is wrong. Honoring the level where that discrimination is essential and important. And you can begin to see some implications of that in various of the teachings that have come down. 
on the one hand, there's a lot said about right thought and right motive. And working from that place, beginning to discriminate what's skillful thoughts, what's unskillful thoughts. Right? Is there motives based on greed, hatred, or delusion? Is it coming from a place of wisdom or compassion? There's a real discriminating awareness there. On the other hand, teachings are of choiceless awareness, of non-discrimination, all thoughts are equal. Those two are not contradictory. They're working on different levels, and at different times, both of them are true. When we're working from a place of manifesting our thoughts in action, in the world, it's helpful to have a very keen sense real discriminating awareness of what kind of energy leads to what kind of result. When we're in a place of non-dual awareness, sitting on your zafu or going through the day, all thoughts come and go are equal. You have wonderful thoughts, you have terrible thoughts, and you see them all as being empty place of choiceless awareness. Both of those perspectives are true. There's the apparent paradox of practice being making right effort and striving, really doing it, becoming enlightened. There's the other whole side of practice being effortless, non-attainment, non-striving, there's nothing to become, nothing to do, nothing to get, nothing to have. The sense of non-duality in each moment, where we're full and complete. It's the difference between becoming Buddha, practice and practice, and the story of Siddhartha in all his lives as a bodhisattva, striving for Buddhahood, and the sense of everybody already being Buddha. There's nothing to strive for and nothing to get. It's been the message of a lot of the great enlightened beings, that we are already enlightened, we are already Buddha. Already we are expressing Buddha nature, enlightenment nature. Those two are not contradictory. And the subtlety of practice has to do with understanding the integration of all those levels, all those perspectives. Coming to an appreciation of the depth of conditioning of dualistic perception, of all the ways we create duality in our life, whether it's separating out parts of our mind that we don't want to see, whether it's separating mind from body, whether it's separating organism from environment, at whatever level we create that duality, that's the place of investigation. Because it's in that place of separation, in that place of duality, that there's the possibility of integration, the possibility of freedom. Do you have any questions?
Well, I can't really tell you from experience. <laughs> but my sense is... I'll just give you an example of the possible direction it goes in. Right? And even this will be a limited uh, example. Very often, when we'd be sitting with Goenkaji, you know, you would sit in front of him, and he would feel the sensations that were in your body. Because it's not that he gets into your body to feel it. It's not like it's that when there's sufficient openness, the interconnectedness of everything begins to become more apparent. That there is not such a definite sense of separation of your body and his body, or your body and my body. Kind of the energy vibrations, which we call body, are not so fixed. They're not so limited. And it's possible to get very sensitive. So that we're not just limited in this prison of the shell of the skin, in the skeleton. Rather, our minds get so open, our hearts get so open, that the interpenetration of things becomes much more available, much more accessible. From watching various people who seem to be quite sensitive in that way, it doesn't seem to be an abdication of individuation. Right? Because, I mean, he takes care of himself, and you know, he eats, and he sleeps, and all the things that normal people do. So again, I think it has to do with integrating the understanding on all of these levels, having a place accessible of real openness, of non-separation, and at the same time being able to carry on one's life functions and do all the things that have to be done, of being able to work on all the different levels. Your mind, uh, the concentration is very good now. That very good the now. mind and the body, is, you feel that the mind is just separate from the Well, no, always, just that one time I really saw The The car is the two, 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 the ジョーボとカリニロヤ、ディヨテマ、ベロホサウデナレポレポンディナンガタカリ、オエジガニキドトゴロントミネエラテカレアチュ。カレキ。ウェナボホサレダ。ケイクシュ。カコネ。トカト
sometimes when I'm very busy in concentration, I have a feeling I can move on to another experience or place. I'm afraid to do so. I, I even dreamt that I wasn't going to take much. I repeated this experience in a dream of having some success in meditation and being ready to move on to another experience, but just being uneasy at that point. That means your concentration is it good or bad? At that moment, quite good. Mm. Feeling quite happy with the state I'm in at that moment. Mm. And other? That feeling that I could now move on to something higher or better or deeper, but you know, try to make that step. To Tiaga, Toro Kaunikya, to Rabu Bilopitisa, to Tamadiga, to Rale Kaunare, a good to Tine. ตุตมาดีกะดีเตตัวรอสิทธิ์ทวาดีโลปอลาเรสรอตุตมาดีกะดีเตตุโลยาเนดาเมเอริยะเชยะเบรอพิเนรอตัวรอดีเตเสรอ
Now, about the water, all the yogis should be like the water. Like, the yogis, they should be, you see, clean. The water cleans everything, you see. The yogi, they should be like the water, that they should not, you see, talk anything with, you see, pride, and they should not, uh, you see, have any kind of attachment. They should not have any kind of, you see, love, or it should be as clear as water, because they should say whatever right, you see, and they should take the right path, like the water, you see.
becomes the overriding preoccupation of life and everything else is totally dull in comparison. And those are called God intoxicants. Like everything else has turned into slish. It's nothing. It's empty. You keep trying to make believe it's still real, but it isn't. 
because you lost it. Only later would you finally get back the joy of living. But for a long time you will be dead to the joys of life because you will be somewhere else, because you are busy finding and coming to your God. And most of us would like to go through the whole journey without missing a step in the dance and keeping going just as we always were without ever upsetting the apple cart and going right through into perfect enlightenment. Well, if you can do it, you're a better person than I am. Because it's tough stuff to do meaningless actions just in order to keep, be consistent with an old game you were playing a while back. It's like going to a movie, a lousy movie you've seen twice before already. It's like that. And you'd rather sit in an empty room with white walls and just go in and in and out and out, and at that point they say, oh, we lost another one. See? Because at that point you're a cave dweller. You may be a cave dweller in New York City or a cave dweller in Williams, it doesn't matter. But at that point you finished with social games, you finished with intellectual games. It all is just stuff, just stuff, 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 stuff. Your personality stuff. Now, from a cultural, social point of view, we say, isn't that terrible what happened to poor Sam? <laughs> he was so promising, and then this thing happened, and, you know, he doesn't seem to be around at all. <laughs> and in fact, many people are hospitalized at this point. Because on the way through to these spaces, they may suddenly see, they may flip to channel seven, when everybody else is on channel five. And that gets you hospitalized almost immediately. <laughs> you know, when you talk to people that aren't there, and don't talk to people that are there, not only that, but in channel seven, you're somebody else than you are in channel five. See, like in Kung Fu, you are one of the gunfighters, while in All in the Family, you're the son-in-law. So if you're in All in the Family and you start to go boom, bang, 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 and hide and I got you and don't you use your kung fu and me, people don't understand that you flip channels and they say you're crazy. Now there are different kinds of craziness. There is craziness where you were, you just flip channels and that's all there is to it. But there is another kind of craziness where you are aimed for God and in the way you are going through the channels and you look for all intents and purposes absolutely out of your, off your rocker. And they are called musts or masts or something like that. And uh, in India, See, they're used to these kinds of beings. So around all the temples there are, you find these beings, and they're singing and crying to the moon, and everybody's going up to have their darshan, going up to touch their feet and honor them, because they realize the, the high spiritual place these beings are in. Now, the predicament of why you get caught in one of these planes rather than going right through to God is because when you start to open up, 
something happens in your energy systems and what's called there is a release of what's called shakti or energy and that energy if your spine and head are straight the energy goes right up and it takes you with it right up and out but if it's a little lopsided for some reason or there is a tremendous blockage somewhere in your system the Shakti comes up and it shoots out this way or that way or another way and so you might get very into start to awaken and the minute you awaken there's this huge inrush of energy but what happens is it all comes out in your sexual chakra so you become absolutely so horny you just want to make it with lampposts and everything <laughs> and you just you take it all of the spiritual energy and you just it started on its way up the snake started its path to God where the Shiva and Shakti were going to meet the energies were going to come together on the top of your head but it only got up as far as your down second chakra space and boom and then you, you say, I'm looking for God but it just turns out to be and then you say I'm practicing sexual Tantra <laughs> or it might go up a little further and you might get onto power trips and in fact most of the spiritual scenes in America are more or less power trips in one subtle way or another and many of you have known that in your heart but you didn't trust the feeling and you will know if you listen in your heart you'll know when something is connected with the highest place and when something is a ripoff of the highest place on a lower plane you'll know it you'll know it in your heart and one of the jobs in learning how to go on the spiritual journey is learning how to trust that inner voice in you that tells you just what's happening just where you're at just what you need next so people come up to me and they say should I do this or should I do that and I say listen to your own heart and you'll know it's much farther out than that but we'll settle for that at the moment now in actuality in working with energies it's better to start the energies working in your heart and work upward even though almost everybody has their energies in the lower centers later you can come back to them because if you start down in the bottom of your spine you're never going to get beyond your sexual chakra the likelihood is so the best is to start focusing on your heart and draw the energies up and keep working up from there from your heart up from your and in the course of this few days I'm here uh, later after all only the hardiest are left uh, we'll start to do uh, some exercises to move energy and to work with these planes now um, as you seek as you look up and begin to understand about reincarnation about karma about spirit about substance from which form is manifested 
you are seeing deeper and deeper into the truths of the universe. The only problem is all of these that are in concept of form are still false truths. They are still partial truths because the true, the only truth really is the formless. It's beyond the form. And you keep moving towards that. You keep getting a pull towards going towards the formless, what Buddha calls nirvana. And along the way, as you're seeking these higher truths, see, there are certain truths, for example, that only can be understood when your heart is open. So you might study them intellectually and get just so far, and then you're reading them, like a lot of you have read books that have in them the sacred truths, but you didn't get the truth because your heart wasn't open. Like in the Kabbalah, for example, in studying the Kabbalah, until your heart is open, you can't understand the Kabbalah. You can intellectually play with the symbology and you can get really exquisite at playing with the tree of life and the whole game. But until you go at it through a heart place, not through a head place, and bring the head and the heart together, lock it into place together, you cannot understand the Kabbalah. And therefore, that's what is meant by secrets that are available, but nobody, they are still secrets. Spiritual secrets doesn't mean they're not written and you can't read them, but you can't understand them because you're not coming at it with a full preparation to come at it. Because in order to merge, in order to do the full journey, your head and your heart have got to be in balance. You've got to have both games open wide. And when I talk about the heart being open wide, I just don't mean the love towards the, the absolute, the love towards God, the love towards the one, the love towards the soul, the highest love, I mean another part of the heart being open, which we call caring, which is the caring for your incarnation, the caring for the fellow beings, the caring for the suffering, the looking down and the caring outward. And if you can understand how horrible now you'll understand what the term the unbearable suffering of the Buddha is and the unbearable compassion is that you get to the point where you know enough truth to see suffering, why suffering exists, see the full nature of it. You are also at the point where you have identified with all beings so all of the suffering is your suffering which is pretty horrible. The starvation and the paranoia and the greed and the lust, it's all yours. And you can't turn away from it. You've got to stay wide open to it. Let me see if I can describe to you how I'm taught that. You're taught it in a very simple way, like in a very, in Tantra. Tantra teaches you through daily life experiences. So, um, my teacher said to me, um, sets up a situation where the teacher is being physically hurt. Like the teacher who is a, um, 
the, the farthest out human being that I know to exist at this moment is carted off to a mental hospital. Okay? Now, how would you feel if you finally found a teacher who you feel is absolutely identified with God, and then through forces out of your control, that being is carted off to a mental hospital? And you want to do something about it. But you can't do anything about it because there's nothing. You're not told the hospital, you know, told the doctor, you don't know anything. You don't know what to do. So your reaction to not being able to do anything about it, if you look at yourselves and see what's happened when somebody you love have died or something like that and you couldn't do anything about it, very often what you do is you pull back into your intellect and you say, oh, well, God knows what's best. Or, that's the way it is. Or you do something intellectual. Or you forget completely the intellectual thing and you sob and you freak out and you say, no, 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 it can't. And you deny it and you go running around the streets going to every hospital looking and the hopes. And you cry and you just become totally flipped out over your emotional upset. Now, imagine that I'm in that predicament where this being who is teaching me, who I love incredibly, has just been carted off, and I can't do anything about it. I could flip out, or I could deny it, intellectually run away. If I do either one, I haven't made it. I haven't passed this particular test. The test requires that I keep in mind the way it all is, keep my heart open to the suffering and still be incapable of doing anything. It's like your heart is just being ripped to shreds and the blood is pouring out and you just sit right in the situation. Now the first time something like this happened, I turned away with my intellect. I jumped, I up-leveled, it's called up-leveling, and I said, oh well, God knows what's best. I'm not going to worry about it. And I get a telephone call. You cold son of a bitch. So the next time it happens, I rant and I rave and I cry and I scream and I get everybody involved and I create huge melodramas and I call hospitals and I, oh, what a production I create. Because once I start to make waves, boy, I can really make waves. Telephone call. What a child you are. <laughs> now after a while you're taken through until you get to the point where you sit with the coldness of the truth and the bleedingness of your heart you don't turn away from the caring about it all and at the same moment you don't turn away from the truth that it all is just the way it's supposed to be that's really what Job was being taken through by the way that kind of place of flipping back and forth. Because the ingredients necessary to go through the door, truth, love of God, caring, caring, caring about ecology, caring about human suffering, doing what you can do about it, caring, 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 just the way you think of caring. Very simple, physical plane caring. 
The balance of all those things, along with the fourth thing, is incredible discipline. The discipline to be able to sit, like in a lotus position, straight for ten hours. And when the pain gets so that your knee is screaming, I do anything if it stops. Teacher comes up and laughs. Only four more hours. <laughs> what are you, chicken shit? Let's go. You want God or do you just want to screw around this lifetime? No compromise. No compromise. Like you're going to sit out and meditate? Meditate. You don't start to meditate and then go do something else. You meditate. You're going to meditate for 20 minutes? Meditate for 20 minutes, not 15 minutes. And what happens is that the teachers are very tough out of their caring. It turns out that it turns out that what you want from a teacher is caring, not mercy. And the caring is designed to help you come to God, not to make you feel good. At first, you just want everything to make you feel good. You want a high. You want bliss. You want ecstasy. And there are beings I've met along the path, there are beings that I work with every day that you see them and all they're going, ah, ooh. <laughs> and you're sitting right next to the person. <laughs> and there are beings that stop for lifetimes right there because it's really good those are like the two and three hour orgasms all right i mean you will all i'm sure you can translate that into something that's meaningful to you <laughs> Uh, uh, that's literal, by the way. I'm not talking any kind of metaphor. That's just what it is experienced like. Just a continuous orgasm. It's, not, it's your whole body. And it's your whole personality. It's just like all your cells are being fired all at once. It's just waves of ecstasy. You want to go to God or you want to hang around just experiencing ecstasy? That's a tough one, see? <laughs> a lot of people say, well, I think for this round I'll take it. <laughs> In the Hindu system, that's called preferring to love the mother. If you recall Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna was totally in love with the Divine Mother. Well, the Divine Mother is the universe, is, is experiences, is all this stuff, it's all of this. This is all the manifestation of the Mother. And he was in love with the Mother. He saw the Mother everywhere. He, saw, he loved Kali, the Mother, the Black Mother. And he loved her so much, he didn't want to go beyond that. He didn't want to finish his work. He just wanted to stay with his lover. And finally, at one point, his guru came up to him and took a sharp stone and stuck it against his forehead 
and just pressed. And the image of the mother shattered into a thousand pieces. What happened was, at that point, the guru opened another chakra. And Ramakrishna went beyond. He walked over the bones of the dead mother. And that's the point of where you take the mother's hand and she leads you up to a place where she stands aside and you go on all by yourself. You've gone beyond guru, you've gone beyond the concept of God, you've gone beyond it all. You just go at that point. And what you go into is so cold and so impersonal and so fulfilling in another way. It's another kind of ecstasy. But there's nobody there. It's the great silence. It's the great aloneness. And usually the first time you do that, it's a little tiny dip in that ocean. And the mother holds your coattail and just pushes you in. And you go in for a second, and then you come right back, and then there's the mother again. Loving you and protecting you and caressing you and beating you and scaring you. Most of your training is done by the mother, is done by the form of the universe. It's forms that do most of your training. And there are different forms of the mother. There's Durga, who's beautiful and loving and sweet and kind and gentle. That's a nice kind of mother to have training you. She trains you with love and she cuddles you and caresses you and gives you the breast and it's all nice. But then there's Kali. Kali's another kind of mother. Kali is ferocious. Kali's got a knife that's got blood dripping. Kali is that part of Christ that said, I come with a sword. It's that part that her ugliness is, is attractive, is only seen as ugly by you if you've got something you're trying to hold on to. All she's out for is everything in you that's keeping you from going to God, everything you're holding on to. And the minute you're not holding on to anything, you don't see the black collie, you don't see the co that collie, you see the golden collie through that one. And no matter how horrible she looks, she just say, come on, give it to me. You must be able to get more horrible than that. Come on, come on, really get horrible. Because you get to the point, but like, for example, uh, you'll be taken through your arrogance. And your teacher will create a situation where you will get very defiant. You'll get so defiant you want to say, well, screw this, I'm leaving. And just at the point where you're about to push yourself up, she laughs hysterically. And she goes like that. And cuts out your arrogance. The image that we were talking about before is like the game of the guru, the game of the teacher, is to press and to force the pus up to the surface until it forces out and then clear it away and keep cleaning away and cleaning away 
all the stuff in you that keeps you being attached to your unworthiness, to your self-pity, to your sense of separateness, to your ignorance, to your doubt, all of these qualities that keep you from returning home, from returning back into the space, from finishing your work, from awakening. But a lot of that stuff that you're holding on to, you think is good stuff. That's the problem. I mean, my kindness, my sense of decency, my self-righteousness, All of these, you want to hold on to them. That's what Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is talking about in the Bhagavad Gita. When Arjuna, who has been told by Krishna to carry out the battle, looks on the other side of the warring lines and says, Holy Krishna! <laughs> he says, look, over there are my uncles and my brothers and my old teachers, I can't go kill all of them. The symbology of that one is you have to kill your own personality attachments, even to the ones inside which you thought were kind of nice. Because any model you have of who you think you are has to go. The trip requires surrender. It requires trust and surrender. Surrender, surrender, surrender of everything. I mean, most people think, well, I'll surrender my... Does that guru want my money? No, the guru wants your soul. Well, I'll surrender my books. Well, that's the beginning. What else you get to give? Well, I could surrender my clothes. Well, that's pretty good. Then you can stand naked. Now, what else? Well, I could surrender my body. Does that guru want my body? <laughs> I don't know. Am I going to risk that? I don't know. Well, surrender your body and see what happens. After all, you can mostly lose your virginity. What the hell? You'll be an interesting experience. <laughs> no, that isn't all they want. Much more than that. They may take that in the bargain just to show you that that wasn't what it was. <laughs> That'll take you on a trip. See? You say, oh, I know the guru's beyond that. He doesn't want my body, but I'll give him my body anyway. And he takes your body. <laughs> my God, he took my body. <laughs> that meant you weren't really surrendering your body. You were just surrendering, wanting to want to surrender. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.